Hello and welcome to a very special episode of How To Be Bold to celebrate International Women's Day 2019. I'm Emma Dean and in this episode I'm going to be joined by the women's historian Dr Sarah Hallowell from Sunderland University. We talk about Sarah's campaign to get a blue plaque for Sunderland's first female MP, why women's history doesn't stop with the suffrage movement and why exactly in 2019 we need to study women's history at all. Shall we just start by you talking us through why women's history? Why does that interest you so much? Mm. I was I always think about this, why have I ended up doing women's history in particular? Um, and it's all, I guess, started probably from when I learned about the suffrage movement at GCSE History. Um, I had a great history teacher at school, but he didn't really cover the suffrage movement in a lot of detail. And I think I always just wanted to know more about these women. So we were learning about the extension of democracy in Britain, but it didn't really cover that much about women's suffrage. And I think I always felt like there must be more to that. And then it, it was when I came to university to do a history degree and picking what I wanted to do for my own dissertation that then I kind of picked it up again, that kind of interest in wanting to know more about you know these women, how they campaigned for the vote. But I became more interested in kind of what happened after that, which has led to to what I kind of currently do, really. And yeah. there's like, the obvious question, and probably one that people campaign, especially on a lot of women's issues, get is, do we need to specifically look at women's mm. history? Do we not need to just look at it actually in, in the whole? Um, yeah, I can see from both sides of the argument, really, really that women's history should be part of just um, the wider historical narrative that we tell. But I think it still deserves its own place because it's still been so overlooked. You know, my example of not covering the women's suffrage movement at school in enough detail is kind of just one example of that. Um, when I teach now, because I'm a lecturer, so I teach undergraduates, I always try to integrate women's history into what I teach. Um, but that's quite a concerted effort from me because I'm interested in that. And I think there's just so many stories of amazing women that have still been forgotten and are still left to be told. So we still need to make that effort to recover those stories. So I think the project of women's history um, is not finished yet, which is why I think it deserves its own separate category and deserves you know, more research and more exciting projects that can you know, uncover these fabulous stories. And you're a lecturer at Sunderland University in yeah. women's history. How do you become a lecturer in women's history? <laughs> um, good question. So basically, I just never left education and continued learning. Um, so I did my degree, then I did a master's. I did have a little bit of time off after that, and then I ended up coming back and doing a PhD, um, which is where I really specialised in kind of women's history in particular, doing my own original research. And it's through those experiences that I've been able to develop kind of research but also gain experience in teaching students as well so I did a little bit of teaching whilst I was doing my PhD and it's kind of just happened from there I've just lots of opportunities have come my way and I've kind of said yes and then I've, here I am I've kind of ended up becoming a lecturer and sometimes I do think when I'm stood in front of a class of students like wow I'm, I'm now the now the lecturer after all the all these years of learning I'm now kind of on the other side which is really nice. <laughs> and what are you specifically working on in a minute? Okay, so in terms of my research, I have a few kind of different projects, but they're all quite related and connected to one another. So um, 
kind of following on from my PhD research, I look at the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which was an organisation set up during the First World War by a group of women, many of whom had been involved in the suffrage movement, but were interested in the ideas of peace and trying to secure peace during the war. Um, so that was the focus of my PhD, and I've continued to do research into that group during the 1920s and 1930s in particular. So I'm kind of writing articles about them. I'm also interested in a group called the Women's Cooperative Guild, who also campaigned for peace and women's rights during that same time period. Um, I'm really interested in what happens to the women's movement after suffrage is granted in 1918, because obviously these women activists didn't just go away. And the range of activities that they become involved in after suffrage. Um, and so that's kind of led me on to the kind of third element of the research that I'm involved in at the moment is looking at some of the first women MPs who were elected after 1918. And I've become particularly interested in Marion Phillips, who was the first woman MP for Sunderland. So obviously I'm based in Sunderland now, so I was quite interested to find out more about her. And there's just not much known about her around Sunderland. So I've done a few public talks to like local history groups and they're all really interested in her, but people don't know, tend to know that much about her. So I'm you know, doing more research about her to try and highlight her work that she did. She was a really, really interesting woman and kind of a culmination of this research is trying to get a blue plaque erected for her in, in Sunderland city centre. So I've, you know, been in contact with the council and it looks like it's going ahead. So we're hoping That's to amazing. get that. Yeah, so I'm really excited. So we're going to get a blue plaque for Marion and that should be in, unveiled in time for the 90th, anno 90th anniversary of her election at the end of May. So fingers crossed it all goes smoothly and we can get a permanent reminder of Marion, which would be great. How long after suffrage, so t I guess 2018, mm -hmm. how long after 2018 was it that Marion became an MP? So Marion was first elected in 1929, Okay, which is also a really interesting election because it was the first general election held where women and men could vote on equal terms because, of course, women's suffrage was first yes. granted on a limited basis yes. to only women who were over the age of 30 or met certain property qualifications or who had a university degree. So that's the first time women can vote and that's what we celebrated last year, of course. But it takes another 10 years for equal suffrage to be granted on the same terms to men and women over the age of 21. So that happens in 1928. And then the following year, at the next general election, which is nicknamed the Flapper election, because of all the new young women who were able to vote, of course, in the 1920s, the, the age of the flappers. So these are the original Blair's babes. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, so this is the flapper election, and there are a very limited number of women MPs still at this time, but Marion Phillips is one of those who's elected in that election, 1929. Um, and yeah, she represents the Labour Party for the, the seat of Sunderland Central. And was it an easy ride for Marion? Did she kind of, was it quite straight sailing in terms of getting selected to be the candidate and then becoming mm -hmm. elected? Or um, did she kind of have to really fight for it? Yeah, there's a bit of a battle, I think, because at that time, Sunderland was actually a two-member constituency. So uh, there were two Labour Party candidates put forward. They were both actually successful in the 1929 election. But Marion doesn't have the same level of support from the male-dominated Labour Party at this mm. time, uh, which is really interesting. So she doesn't actually have quite the same level of financial backing for her campaign. She is invited to stand in the 
constituency because she's not a local girl but she's invited to stand uh, by the Durham uh, women's labour section and they're really impressed with the work that she'd done in the area during uh, the the strike of 1926 um, so she's made a, a lasting mark in the communities in the northeast so they invite her up so it's the Durham labour women who support her campaign so she doesn't have the same level of financial support so it's obviously quite tricky but she actually uh, wins the election with the largest proportion of the vote um, and both of the Labour candidates are elected to, to represent Sunderland. So she, she does overcome some of those barriers, but yeah, she, it's, it's not necessarily a smooth ride. And in terms of the other organisations you've been focusing on, obviously we all learn and have since learned about suffrage and especially because we've had the centenary last year of limited suffrage, as you say. But that is where the story usually stops for most of us. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any kind of particular kind of women or um, campaigns that have stood out to you as to what people have gone and done after that suffrage movement? Yeah, exactly. So that was what I became really interested in because I was the same, you know, the women's movement, most people think of the women's movement as kind of the first wave that ends with 1918 women's suffrage, but that's limited, and then a second wave in the 60s and 70s. But there's so much more to it, and that's what a lot of women's historians are looking at at the moment. And there's a lot of uh, work being published about the the variety of activity that's going on from the 1920s onwards, right through the 20th century. Um, and that's what you know my work also tries to look at. I'm really interested in all the different things that they get involved with. So some of that's obviously supporting women into into politics, supporting those first candidates and MPs. Um, getting women involved in politics, joining political parties, educating them about politics. Um, And the main campaign that I'm probably most interested in is this campaign around peace and international relations, um, which obviously is really pertinent issue during the 1920s and 1930s, particularly as the 1930s goes on and there's so much turmoil in Europe. And during that period, you know, we've got the birth of the League of Nations and then the failure of the League of Nations. So I'm really interested in how women responded to those issues international issues which are often seen as men's issues uh, high politics but my research shows that there's a range of women's organizations that are actively encouraging women to take an interest in these issues and to use their voice where they can and elect candidates who are going to support the issues that they're interested in at the national and international level um, which is what I think is you know, really interesting. This is not just women engaging in politics on a local community level, but it's the national and the international as well. I mean, it's something that's so relevant to today. We always see kind of these photos of kind of the G20 or any kind of international summit, and it's mm-hmm. so noticeable that you'll get kind of Angela Merkel, Theresa May, and maybe one or two others, but mm-hmm. it's still kind of a sea yeah. of, um, of men who all look pretty similar. Yeah. And people talk about, actually, if there was more more women on the international stage, then you would probably get a lot of more different outcomes and maybe more soft power, which could Mm -hmm. potentially avoid any conflict. Is that something that's kind of coming out of your research to kind of back that up? Yeah, exactly. So it's exactly the same thing. So, And I think that's what makes it so interesting and important to study these kind of, I guess, pioneers of women being involved in international politics because it's still such a problem as you said you know there are very few women on the international stage but you know the main organization that I've done research on the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom they're lobbying the peacemakers at Versailles at the end of the First World War they're traveling to Paris and trying to make sure that the women's point of view is there in the peace treaty they're trying to shape the form of the League of Nations when it's created and they're trying to 
ensure that there's female representation in, in those positions within the League of Nations when it's established. And the same again than when the United Nations is created after the Second World War. So these are, this is an ongoing effort, which is why I think it's really important to study this history, because it's still obviously an ongoing issue for women in politics and particularly I think international relations and international politics but yeah one of the arguments that the women I study is that they need women's representation in these levels of politics to create a better balance that for some of these women they think that militarism and war is uh, the peak of masculinity and they need more a kind of feminine influence in politics to kind of balance that out um, not all of them thought in such quite essentialist terms about gender but they're still advocating for a prominent role for women in all levels of politics, which is, you know, why I think it's such an interesting topic to study. Definitely. And why do you think it's taken so long for these stories to be heard? You know, if you think about it, kind of lobbying on the on the side of Versailles, mm-hmm. that's hugely interesting mm-hmm. and important to the outcome, but no one's ever heard that story. Yeah, because it's not necessarily in kind of the official decision-making process, it's all the discussions that are going on backstage, which, you know, personally I find probably more interesting than some of the official decision-making um, discussions. You know, these women are engaging with the heads of state and diplomats. They're talking to Woodrow Wilson about the 14 points for peace and... Um, they travel around Europe lobbying for an end of end to the war as the war is raging on and as I said they're there in Paris and I think those stories are too easily overlooked if we just focus on kind of history as being the history of you know those who are in power and have the most influence you need to look kind of beyond that to find I guess the fuller story really um, and there's so much more to be said about the role that women play in politics if if you look at it in a slightly different way. And I guess that's still happening in a way because if you look at kind of the way that our political organisations and um, NGOs and not-for-profits are made up, you do still predominantly get more men who are at the centre of politics in Westminster and Whitehall, but more women who are running the Mm not-for-profits and the campaigning Mm -hmm. organisations. So in a way, not a lot has changed. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I guess it depends on how you look at politics, doesn't it? So I guess the traditional history of politics is that high politics, the parties, what's going on in the, in the House of Commons itself. But as you say, there's more to it than that. There are all these different organisations that are involved in, in politics and having an influence in decision-making and the making of the law and, and so on. And so often that's where we find find a lot of the women who are active, um, which is why I think it's really interesting to look at these whole range of different organisations that are involved in that kind of sphere. And moving on to some of the questions that I kind of ask all my guests mm-hmm. on the podcast, and the first one is always, what does being bold mean to you? Mm, interesting. I think... I'm going to swerve this as a historian by thinking about my women from history. And because some inspiration. They, yeah, exactly. Because I don't know if I'm that bold, but they were definitely bold. Um, you know, these are pioneers. They are campaigning for many of the things that we take for granted in terms of, you know, the vote, but also things like birth control, abortion, uh, female political representation in a really difficult climate where the vast majority of public opinion was often against them. 
um, but they stick to their guns anyway. They are traveling, the women that I look at anyway, they're traveling overseas and going to these international conferences and making networks with other women and feminist activists from different countries. And it's just an inspiration really. And I think sometimes, you know, I feel quite inadequate when I'm just sat here at my computer writing about them when they're off, you know, doing these marvelous things and, you know, changing the world really. Um, but yeah, to me, they're the epitome of kind of being a bold woman. Definitely. I think anyone who's done a PhD is pretty bold. I mean, what's not going into that? I'm just trying um, to avoid real life. <laughs> dedicating kind of uh, your life at the minute to kind of telling the stories of these kind of forgotten heroes in many ways. Yeah, it's pretty I, that, bold. Yeah, and I hope people, you know, do learn more about these women, not just, you know, uh, from me, but a whole range of all other historians who are trying to do the same kind of thing, recover these women's voices and stories, because I think they're important to be told and what's the best bit of advice that that you've been given I don't know if it's kind of a succinct piece of advice but I think feel like in my career to where I've I've got to I've always had a lot of support and encouragement from various people and I just don't think I would have got here without that some of the opportunities that I've had I'm not saying I haven't worked hard for it but it's often come from supportive people behind the scenes who have helped me out so whether that's other university lecturers and tutors supervisors other people in the field and I've ended up where I am today because of the whole range of different opportunities and support you know I often suffer from I guess what we all talk about being imposter syndrome Um, and I think so many people do but it's having that support network behind you people who do believe in what you do and your research and your work and yeah, so it's not really a piece of advice, but I think having that kind of support behind you has really has really helped me anyway, and I'm sure it helps other people in a whole range of different jobs. Yeah, and imposter syndrome is something that kind of, no matter who I've talked to in these episodes, I mean, from law, from politics, from business, adventurers, yeah. academics, everyone, yeah. all of us seem to have it, and like, maybe a big part of it is because we don't know about some of the women who have blazed a trail before us, and yeah. actually there's a lot of women who've done some really amazing things, mm-hmm. which shows that it can be done, yeah. and it can be fought for. Yeah, um, We're not actually the first ones who are going out there and, and doing a lot of these things. Yeah, exactly, and I mean, I'm sure some of them probably battled with some of the same imposter syndrome feelings, but maybe it just wasn't articulated as such. But yeah, I think we can take inspiration from some of these women. You know, they're doing incredible things, often without that same kind of support that we have today, and kind of blazing that trail. So I think yes it's it's not just important to recover their stories just because it's important but we can actually be inspired and take inspiration from from them I guess and there's so many books out there and kind of um different kind of guidance that's given to people about how to be successful as a woman in kind of the modern mm. world and there's some school of thought which says you kind of you need to change your uh, personalities somewhat and become more masculine and then mm. there's others saying that's absolutely the wrong thing to do and you should absolutely just be yourself from your research and and the various women that you've looked at, considering this was almost 100 years ago in some cases, did they have to kind of change themselves to fit into a man's world, do you think? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Most of the women that I look at are probably quite feminist, whether or not they would have described themselves as such. But many of them as well are very kind of feminine. 
and highlight their kind of feminine roles. So, for instance, the women that I look at that are campaigning for peace, they're often discussing the role of motherhood in that. Um, so they're not downplaying being a woman, but they're saying that because we're women, we need to be represented to add something else to the political discussion, that we don't just want to be like men. That's not a quality. We want rights for us as women. But yeah, some of those first women MPs, it would have been so difficult to walk into the House of Commons and try and make your voice heard. And, you know, the press had a field day with what they were wearing, as you can probably imagine. And they were always discussing what the first female MPs were wearing. And I think, <laughs> this is a really funny story, but Marion Phillips, who I was talking about before, she actually designed her own uniform to wear when she went to sit in the Commons. And it was basically like just quite dowdy overall that she put on over her clothes. And it was partly because she found the House of Commons filthy. Mm. Apparently it was very dusty. But I think also it was to just kind of um, not draw attention to herself as much. Whereas some of the other female MPs, I think, quite liked to cause a stir yeah, when they walked in and be flamboyant. Um, but she kind of adopts this uniform approach. But then again, it's reported on loads in the press that chatting about this uh, uniform that she's made for herself, which I always find quite amusing. That's so <laughs> funny. And then she shows again that nothing has really changed and that, you know, every time that Theresa May steps out in a new pair yep. of, kind of, yep. of uh, animal print shoes, it gets reported on, yep. like how she's wearing yeah. during her interview with Vogue, that gets written on more than actually the policies that they're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And the male politicians all wear uniforms because they just wear the same suits all the time. So easy, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And so if people are listening to this and they're thinking that they want to learn more and kind of dip their toe into kind of reading more about some of these women, mm. where's a good place to start? Oh, that's interesting. There's a whole range of really good uh, women's history books that are coming up out at the moment and, you know, not just highly academic books as well because sometimes it can be quite difficult to access. Um, and I think that's partly due to the interest in the centenary. So really good book I read recently was um, Bad Girls by Catelyn Davis and that was about the history of Holloway Prison. Um, oh, and obviously that included about the suffragette prisoners yeah. and that's written for a quite general audience. There's also a really great book about... Um, the suffrage pilgrimage of 1913 which was a huge demonstration from a, across the country where suffrage suffragists rather than suffragettes marched um, to London to convene and have a massive demonstration at Hyde Park and that was written by um, Jane Robinson but that was a really great book as well but yeah it's really encouraging that I think there's a lot more published these days about women's history and it's not just about the Pankhurst family. Yeah, they're really interesting too, but there's more to it than that. So there's a whole range of stuff now that's coming out and I think that's really great. And I'm also really encouraged to see the amount of uh, stuff written for children as well. And there's some really great kids' books that have that feminist angle. So um, I've seen kids' know. books, but we love them too. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in terms of you, after the blue plaque, which mm. will obviously be 100% successful, what, what's after that? What's next? What's next? Well, uh, the big plan is um, a book based on my PhD research into the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And I've got a few other kind of publications on the go. They're kind of more academic stuff, really. But I really love talking to the public about my research. I do quite a lot of local history talks and things like that. So there'll be definitely more of that and hopefully a big unveiling ceremony when we get this blue plaque put up. <laughs> I'll definitely be there. Yeah, it's very yeah. exciting. <laughs> well, on this International Women's Day 2019, Dr Sarah Halliwell, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much to Sarah for joining us for this special episode to be bold for International Women's Day 2019. I don't know about you, but this has left me wanting to learn so much more about the bold women who've been active on the sidelines of major global events over the last century. We have some equally fantastic women joining me over the next few weeks, so I do hope you'll listen in again. And I'd really love to hear from you. If you've got any feedback, please do rate and leave a review. And you can also follow us on Instagram at howtobebold. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening in and till next time.